0: I admire your luck, Mr.
1: Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. The mother, she was, must have scared the living daylights out of her.
0: What of you? Hello and welcome. You are joining us at a brand new podcast as part of the Optimism Vaccine Roster. This is For Your Ears Only, episode 001, uh, which if the branding is not giving it all away already, uh, that should let you know this is going to be our James Bond podcast. We're going to be looking at all things James Bond, uh, going through all of the movies. Uh, Who is we? We is myself, Jack Eason, and also Jake Trapila. How are you doing, Jake?
1: Hey, I'm doing just fine. Jack, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to to do this. Um, I guess we should start off with a with a disclaimer, which is that we we actually already recorded this episode once before, and then due to technical hijinks, um, which I'm mm-hmm. sure were the Russians, um, that that file <laughs> was was definitely not usable so uh, we're we're going to have to run through this again, so this that's just a disclaimer in case at any point in this podcast we end up cajoling each other to try and say things that's because I know that you know we each know someone said something good the last time, and we just want to get it out there again. It's not that we're just have conversations like this generally we don't actually finish each other's sentences that often, um, yeah. So, but but just to let you know, we're blaming the Russians because that's very much on theme with with James Bond, uh, certainly in the sixties. It's also uh, very much on theme nowadays. So it's kind of bringing everything around full circle, kind of completing it, letting you know that James Bond is still very relevant. Um, so we're we're gonna go through all of the James Bond films. That's a plan. And um, we're gonna go through a yeah. film at a yeah. time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, so basically, I did some math, and uh, we are officially twenty six oh Uh, months away from the new james bond film which is set to be released in november of 2019 and i thought hey there's the same amount of months as there are james bond films let's record a podcast each month and review all of the james bond films before the new one and jack uh was on board with the idea immediately so here we are i'm i'm glad to finally have my own podcast spinoff from the optimism vaccine and the the overlords there have commissioned this to go forward so we uh
0: fooled them. they're gonna, they're going to they've caved to our whims yes yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah yeah that's that's the plan we got this so hopefully you will consider this your one-shop stop for James Bond chatter we're going to go through let's say every single movie probably you know the official ones and some of the less well uh, received kind of uh, other ones that appear throughout the years so there's a few of those yeah. Um, so yeah we we're, we're going to go through everything so i need to be doing
1: you, mm-hmm. yeah we're, we're doing all the the 24 official eon productions we're gonna do never say never again and we're going to do the 1967 casino royale uh we will not be doing the 1956 or whatever casino royale starring oh, the, barry yes. nelson because i have not 54 yeah there you go because i uh, <laughs> honestly have not seen it and don't really have much care to no, I it's know. it's I,
0: it is, no, I've not seen it. And honestly, yeah, it, the, for anyone who doesn't know, the, the original screen adaptation of James Bond was on uh, NBC television in America on an anthology show called Climax, which did like hour long uh, dra- dramatic episodes, each one into uh, a distinct play. And one of them was an adaptation of, of Casino Royale that Ian Fleming pitched in on. And James Bond was played by Barry Nelson, as Jake mentioned, and he was an American secret agent who worked for the CIA, but it wasn't the Central Intelligence Agency. It was the Combined Intelligence Agency. And honestly, the whole concept of James Bond as an American secret agent is just ridiculous. So I think we can safely... um, discount that it is the first screen appearance of bond it might be interesting to look over sometime as a curio but it's certainly not considered in any way uh, substantial uh, yeah substantial it certainly didn't didn't formulate the franchise and the movie that we're going to discuss today is very much the it lays down the template for the franchise
1: it's the first true james bond movie and that is of course dr no but uh, before we get into that, Jack, let's uh, talk about our history with the franchise. So uh, growing up, when did you discover James Bond?
0: Sure. Um, my discovery of James Bond, I, I, can't, I don't actually remember what the first James Bond movie I ever saw was. Um, it's kind of a bit of a blur because uh, I'm old, I think is probably the, the true answer to that. But um, I always have, I have a weird recollection or connection of James Bond to Christmas for whatever reason because Irish television is a very odd entity uh growing up I had two TV channels in Ireland my parents would never shell out for like satellite cable television and honestly mm-hmm. looking back I don't blame them so I yeah. had two TV channels in Ireland affectionately uh nicknamed Poverty One and Abstinence Two um <laughs> although they don't they don't really uh run with those anymore it was actually RTE One and, and Network Two which are state-run channels and um they they run all manner of things. They import a lot of American, British, Australian television. I saw TV from all over the world growing up. But um, in Christ- at Christmas time, it would pretty much just switch over to just movies all the time because Christmas in Ireland seems to be typified by no one going to bed and everyone staying up for real late and going to mass at weird hours of the night and then just hanging around and drinking. And, uh, Sounds that's- about right. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. It's it's uh, honestly, I recommend trying it. You can you can skip the Catholic bit. I mean, the going to mass is kind of its own <laughs> thing. But um, as part of that, just films came on all hours of the day and night, just all kinds of things. And among them, every single every single Christmas for my when I was growing up, certainly um, were late era Roger Moore and the Timothy Dalton bond movies they would always come on uh living daylights licensed to kill uh moonraker and a view to a kill which is i i'm gonna guess a view to the ki a view to a kill is the james bond movie i have seen more than any other james bond movie um it's an interesting yeah, one a weird one i guess they were the most they were the newest at the time so i guess they were the most desirable this think- is like pre gold golden eye coming out
1: oh yeah and uh, and Pierce Brosnan is Irish, much like yourself. So I bet that was an interesting time to have uh, that, a Bond that was a
0: good one Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was much talk of that. Well, you know, politically, what does it mean when James Bond is Irish? But uh, I, I don't know. I guess we'll we'll get to that in Goldeneye, which is way down the line. We're going to go through these chronologically. So you know. Let us build up. We're going we're gonna to pick up steam as we get to a better idea where we're going with this. But yeah, yeah. I, I grew up watching, you know, Timothy Dalton ones and the Roger Moore ones have a really special place for me. From there, when I watched them as a kid, really, I guess I really was really young when I saw them the first time. I started, a friend of mine was also kind of a, into them. We started renting them. I think, like, honestly the early Sean Connery Bond movies which are rented on VHS after seeing these so many times on T V, they were probably the first older movies that I ever watched as a kid, like from the sixties. I wasn't exactly mm. watching a lot of old movies. Yeah. So that was pretty much my introduction. It was really for me growing up, weirdly enough, you know, like it was really Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton, and old Roger Moore and Timothy <laughs> Dalton were the were the definitive bonds. Um so that's that's broadened out. But uh you had a very different entry point for or James Bond
1: yeah so I'm a little bit younger and I'm a little bit more American um yeah, my, my first experience with James Bond was actually it goes back to uh 1997 where a neighbor who was my best friend at the time uh introduced me to the N64 video game Goldeneye 007 which I've probably logged hundreds of hours into uh playing it um mainly the multiplayer mode which is just so much fun and uh, this was my first real uh, introduction to anything Bond related. And I loved the game. And then one day, my neighbor, he had rented a VHS copy of GoldenEye, the movie. And we sat down to watch it. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. It's this is James Bond in the flesh and all these elements from the game I get to see come to life in the movie. And the great thing about that game is that there's so many references from all the other films that have been put into it. And as a. Uh, as I grew older, I became more aware of other Bond films, and I would see bits and pieces of them on TV, and I'd recognize other elements from the GoldenEye 007 game. And uh, by the time uh, by the time Casino Royale rolled around in uh, theaters, I was pretty much a diehard fan of the series, but felt I hadn't watched them all enough. So then a few years later, I got copies of every film, and I just watched them all in order took about two months to finish but uh those are some of the best days of my life and now i consider myself a devoted diehard james bond fan for life
0: cool yeah yeah definitely jake is is uh, we're, we're gonna like double team this whole thing but uh, jake is definitely our reference point for actually knowing about james bond I, I consider myself a lapsed james bond fan in that i really enjoy james bond movies but mm-hmm. i keep forgetting to actually watch them uh, which has proved somewhat problematic. I'm good. This this is a great excuse to fix them. I've seen most of the older ones at least once. Some of them I've not seen in like 20 years, though. So, and I have not watched any of them past Casino Royale, the, the Daniel Craig intro. So I've got some catching up to do here, um, yeah. which is going to be interesting. Uh, some of those Pierce Brosnan ones are going to be interesting to catch up on. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's going to be a, a really interesting trip, and I hope you you guys all enjoy it because we're going to try and try we're going to try and balance it out between spitting out a couple of factoids about this and that, and then mostly just editorializing about what we think uh, works and doesn't work. Because you know w- whatever there's there's a lot of people who know a lot more about James Bond in terms of hard fast facts and stuff, and you know oh, you can pick oh, yeah. that up. But but we're we're here basically as just two guys who really enjoy watching a super suave British guy shoot people. Um, yeah' brings, also, oh sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead no no, I, was, I no, no, I was just saying that you know watching him shoot people really brings us all together as as the human race. James Absolutely. bond will unify yeah. us all.
1: nobody does it better, baby, and That's uh, it. and I just want to say that um as far as the franchise goes, you know, obviously everyone has their films they love, uh the films they don't love as much, films they like, films they barely tolerate um and I certainly have my picks of those, but I feel with James Bond, it's the only series I can really I can I can sit down and literally watch any of these movies any day of the week, even if it's ones I don't like, because there's still something to them that I I find fascinating and exciting. So, uh, yeah, so this will be interesting to revisit because some of these I literally have not seen in years. Some I've seen within the past year, Um, Jack, you'll be happy to hear that one of them Uh, coming up relatively soon could be considered an official James Bond Christmas movie. So uh we'll we'll be excited for that when that gets here.
0: That that will be an interesting one. Um Yeah. Yes, for for sure. So um I guess starting off, let's let's just talk about Bond himself because Sean Connery is obviously considered the, the archetype of Bond. He was the first, aside from Barry Nelson, who we're not probably ever going to mention ever again, because no, whatever.
1: And that's, that's a wrap on Barry. <laughs>
0: that's Barry. Sorry, Barry, you're out of the picture. So Sean Connery is very, the, he's the archetype of James Bond. Everyone who came afterwards was always compared to Connery. They were always, whatever they did, whatever they brought to it was always considered, you know, it, it's always considered a variation on something that Sean Connery put in place. He really completely inhabited the role, but Connery yeah. was not the original pick for James Bond, which is uh, interesting when we look at the people they were looking at. Original original considerations were actually Patrick McGowan and Roger Moore. Roger Moore, would of course become james bond later on and in, in much later and but patter McGowan played danger man on british tv roger moore played the saint who were both kind of like super suave secret agent uh criminal kind of spy investigators they were everything and whatever you yeah. know but ver- very similar to the james bond kind of mold
1: and but uh, they were uh, Mc- mm-hmm. McGowan would go later go on to do the prisoner which is an outstanding spy series yes, you've absolutely. never seen that
0: Oh, yeah. You know, if if you've never seen The Prisoner, watch all the Bond movies, but definitely uh, counterpoint them with The Prisoner, which is one of the most unusual TV productions. I think I don't know how the pitch meeting for that movie or for that TV series went, but I'm (laughs) glad they I'm glad they went along with them because it's pretty amazing. But um, so so those guys were originally considered Uh, the original choice, apparently by the producers, which blows my mind a little bit, was Cary Grant, who makes a lot of sense. In terms that Cary Grant pretty much is real life James Bond as a man who just basically rocks a tuxedo and just looks super suave all the time, but he, he would is. have been he would have been fifty eight years old at the time that Doctor No was being produced, which is a, a year older than Roger Moore was in A View to a Kill when everyone was complaining about James Bond being too old.
1: And and I can sort of justify why they would want to go with him, because at that time, the closest film that really felt like a Bond film would be Hitchcock's North by Northwest, which is very much a lot of the uh, world hopping, grandiose um, action sequences that you would commonly find in a Bond film. Except here, that's just sort of put an ordinary man in the middle of it all. so the idea is to make him a super spy with all these gadgets and guns and stuff.
0: Yeah, it, it makes it makes sense. Cary Grant very much like it, it. It makes sense in your head, but then fifty eight years old. I mean, Grant looked great for his age. I'm sure, but that was a. It, I'm glad they didn't go down that route. Uh, how many movies could Grant have gone in for? Admittedly, uh, they they did actually part of hiring Sean Connery was because he was would agree to a multi picture deal where uh, Cary Grant would not. So um, I guess they were they were forward thinking enough to to let the grant thing go. Um, Ian Fleming, of course, wanted Christopher Lee to play James Bond, his cousin, uh, the great Christopher Lee, uh, who would go on to become who he'd play a villain later on in Man with the Golden Gun. That's um, right. So Christopher Lee would be he'd be a really kind of, like I mean he could do it I'm sure but he he seems a little like he'd be like sinister James Bond. It would I'm not sure that would be a great idea.
1: Yeah, with Lee, there's just sort of this kind of undercurrent of menace that he (laughs) always seems to carry with him that I don't think would work for any Bond role, but certainly perfect for a villain, as we'll come to find out.
0: Definitely. Yeah. So so these, these were the things. So Sean Connery was eventually chosen. Apparently Connery was a little rough around the edges as an actor. He was a bit of a, a wild child kind of. Um, I'm not sure Connery's upbringing, but I think he was probably I don't know if he was working class or not, but he wasn't. He certainly wasn't uh, kind of in line with James Bond's persona. So it was Terrence yeah. Young who directed Dr. No, who apparently coached Sean Connery, took him to his his tailor and barber and took him to casinos and taught him how a dapper gentleman, a well-bred person would, would behave and act. So yeah. and that, that's kind of interesting because Terence Young really had a lot of influence on this first film um, directing. it. he also apparently was responsible for a lot of the humorous elements, the kind of the self-effacing kind of sexual innuendos and things because he felt that playing James Bond completely straight would... Would kind of distance an audience wouldn't work. It would he'd, yeah. he'd seem either lewd or just couldn't be taken seriously. And um, which I think is it's probably a fair. You've read some of the Ian Fleming novels, correct? Oh, oh yeah, I've, I've read all of um, Fleming's novels. Oh wow, in, okay, all yeah. of them.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: oh man, yeah. okay, good, good. That's that's really, yes. that saves that saves me some homework. And um, I, I feel like Ian Fleming, from what I know of him. Uh, he sounds like he, it always struck me that James Bond was kind of like wish fulfillment and he, like Ian Fleming always felt like a little bit of a I, he just felt like a guy who wanted to be James Bond. So I, I kind of understand Mayor and Young's idea of making it more a little bit more jokey to kind of deliver the content. I feel like do, do Fleming's books have a lot of sense of humor to them?
1: There are actually yeah, a few bit of lines uh, here and there that uh, will make you chuckle. Um, some of them are either oh, horribly ra- racist or sexist, <laughs> as is Fleming's want. That, but yes. um, but yeah, but Bond, Bond's very much of a, a no nonsense bruiser in the novels, and it's mm-hmm. been it's been mentioned before. But uh, if you're familiar with Timothy Dalton's work on screen, those are generally accepted as the closest to Fleming's Bond. Yes, okay, so, performance.
0: Yeah, and that and that makes a lot of sense. I f- I feel like. As we move forward, I think definitely part of what Connery brought to the role was that kind of that that, you know, quip that would come with with offing someone or whatever, really laying the groundwork for the wonderful 80s masterpieces of Arnold Schwarzenegger and and Bruce Willis where you know, killing someone is just a joke, (laughs) a wonderful learning experience for young children everywhere.
1: Yeah, and he but the thing is that Connery is, is so rewatching this, I was really amazed at how well Doctor No holds up, but also at how fully formed Connery appears, because you mentioned that like he had to sort of be trained and tailored and groomed, and like just in my head, I'm imagining Connery Circa Zardoz showing up to audition <laughs> for James Bond and he's tailored to be the suavest, coolest mofo on the planet. But the way connery does it it's his first film but you you really get the sense that he's been bond for several years now he's just makes yeah. it so easy to watch Oh
0: no no question uh, yeah he's he's like I said, he just completely inhabits it. i'd like to imagine that Jay, that that sean connery uh that the zardoz red underwear outfit that sean connery owned that and he showed up to multiple auditions in it and still succeeded as an actor um, yeah, that's my yeah. little my little fantasy that I like yeah. to to bring out every so often because you know it's what makes us different it's what makes us special so that's mine um, but well I suppose we, we might as well let's let's get into the movie so we're talking Doctor No right the, the year is 1962. This is um, as I say. It's not the first Bond story. Uh, Casino Royale, I think, was the first James Bond book, but that had been adopted yeah. into that TV show, so that actually the rights lay with someone else. So uh, Eon Productions could not go with that. This uh, so was
1: they the, had to, the mm-hmm. si- this was the sixth novel in Fleming series, which is okay. an interesting starting point.
0: Yeah, so so a little bit a little bit in, but um, they pretty much they they really. As you said, this movie really holds up really well, and I suppose what's interesting—that—that that was one of the first things I noticed—is how much of what is considered canon James Bond, like the the really the defining elements of James Bond movie. How many of them are? immediately on display in Dr. No in those opening like a really James Bond movie mm-hmm. set their tone and their their kind of franchises is, is set in like the first five minutes of every movie. And this movie has it. it opens with the scene of action that's going to, you know, with the three blind mice. And yeah. I don't remember the exact order. And then we go. Do, do we go from that? It's, it's, I think that's the very first scene. And then it goes we, into the we you know, go to.
1: Well, first, I, we should mention, we get the uh, the iconic gun barrel sequence. Okay, the
0: gun barrel sequence comes first. Yeah. I can never, for some reason, I can never remember which comes first. So the gun barrel sequence comes first, which is um, a remarkable, see, this was designed by Morris Bender, who did mm-hmm. um, who did that, and the intro credits, and it's, uh, the gun barrel intro is just such a, I mean, it's, I would say, it's iconic. We're probably going to use iconic several it, times it, here.
1: Yeah, anytime I sit down and watch a Bond film, without fail, the gun barrel always puts a smile on my face because i know i'm in familiar territory and it's everything is going to be all right
0: yeah it's it sets the tone pretty much immediately and um and that's by um played by bob simmons who was a stunt man i believe it's not sean connery it doesn't play bond in the original uh, gun barrel oh, yeah, sequence so you know hey why, why not uh, just you two's there uh, i read apparently that it was shot using a pinhole camera in an actual gun barrel i don't know if that that seems like one of those things that could be true, but also seems totally outlandish. But, you know, it honestly, I don't know. Um, it, it could be. I mean, pinhole cameras, you, you could do it, I guess, theoretically. I don't know if it's the easiest way to do it, but I assume, you know, I, I don't know. But uh, that would be kind of cool if that's what they actually decided to do. I figure there's probably easier ways to do it, but that's a cool story.
1: Yeah, I think a gun barrel might be too narrow for cameras back then, but again, I'm not I'm not entirely sure as to how yeah, exactly you can
0: project the image back through. I mean it just it's one of those things that I wouldn't be surprised either way, you know. There's probably yeah. some special effects person somewhere is like, you fool, of course it can be done. And and if if so, feel free to berate me online. I'm I don't care.
1: Yeah. So um, And that's yeah, that's we, sort of a that's sort of a running thing throughout the Bond films, is is like let let's say uh, let's try this and uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it does not.
0: Yes, definitely a franchise as we as we go on discussing it that, that adapts some expected and some unexpected um, tropes as it progresses. Because I mean, it's pretty incredible. We think about this, like Doctor No is um, God. It's nearly sixty years old. Really, it's it might be over sixty years old at this point. It's really and it's, oh, yeah. as you say, it still holds up. It's really. It really works, and it's it's a film that really it hit, let's say it hits the ground running. So we so we have we have the the gun barrel scene, then we have an assassination, just an immediate burst of action involving we're known as three blind mice who are three assassins who pose as blind beggars and may or may not actually be blind. I, I love the way in the in the James Bond universe, honestly, they use guns to kill people. It would be I wouldn't surprise them either way if they actually confirmed they were actually blind. Like that, would, it wouldn't stop them from using guns. But they don't really confirm one way or the other.
1: Um, I like I'm, to I like to think they are blind because they do have their own chauffeur who drives them around. So and that's
0: true, they possible. do. Yeah, they've got their own getaway driver. Like they, they can shoot guns accurately and kill people, but like it's it's just too much trouble to drive a car around the streets of Jamaica. So we yeah. have we have an assassination immediately, and then we go straight into the the main theme. And uh, again, we have it's a great stylized theme um, theme sequence. It starts, it starts as a James Bond theme, which is I think that's worth going over. That's um, written by Monty Norman, although there's been some legal challenges because John Barry, who played who John Barry's orchestra. Uh, played all the music in the film that Monty Norman composed, and John Barry would go on to compose the music for many James Bond films. I think mean, he may have composed the music for more James Bond films than anyone else. But uh, Barry has lodged some legal actions claiming that he actually wrote the the famous iconic. There it is again, a James Bond theme. But Monty Norman has thus far has defended successfully in court that he is the author. So I'm, I think that's as definitive as we're going to get that he did indeed produce it and it really is a great theme it's got this really kind of jaunty guitar edge to it, it's kind of an interesting uh, hybrid of hybrid of rock guitar and kind of yeah. a, a larger orchestra, it really brings them together and, and as you say the second the James Bond team kicks in you know where you are, you know what's happening. It's it's exactly. your your home. You're exactly where you wanna be. Yeah. So it opens it opens with James Bond theme and then it segues into a rendition of a kind of a calypso rendition of three blind mice, the song, which three of course echoes mice. back Here we go. <laughs> yeah. which echoes back to events in the film. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't feature the film title in the lyrics, which of course would become a big part of the James Bond thing. We don't have that yet.
1: Yeah, only a, only a handful of uh films uh don't do that uh octopus is another notable example for reasons <laughs> perhaps most <laughs> they obvious should,
0: they should have done it if they remake <laughs> it now they should get run the jewels to do the theme tune they'll do it no <laughs> problem it'll be amazing <laughs> octopus uh, probably should never have been the title of that film but whatever
1: well it was one of uh fleming's original novels so it, uh, yeah i know it, of yeah. course it was you can blame him for that <laughs> <laughs>
0: I could just see the meetings for the, like, are we actually gonna do this? Are we yeah. should, like historical accuracy versus common sense? You know, it's a mistake. Okay, if you make it a second time, I don't know. But anyway, we'll we'll get to Octopussy, and that will be an interesting one. Um, that Yes, but so so we have Three by Mice and it's a style, again, Bender does the the kind of animated theme. It's a really cool, colorful thing, and it really sets again the tone for silhouettes and, and kind of really lively action seeker and the kind of action kind of uh stylized uh opening credits scene. And then we settle into um settle into the film at large, which of course um Quickly introduces us to the titular James Bond himself, who is, of course, hanging out in a casino, because where else would you be hanging out in London? Um, but actually, what's, what's interesting, I suppose we we, we look at this because we'll go through the cast and people later on. But actually, what we first meet in, in, in the casino is actually um, a lady named Sylvia Trench. Who is played by Eunice Gayson, um, and she is has she she earns the the amazing honor of being the first woman that James Bond sleeps with in the entire franchise. What an That's incredible right. honor! Uh, but she also is actually she recurs she appears in in the next movie. She's almost like she's James Bond's girlfriend for like two movies, kind of, which is an incredible honor unto itself that she could hold down James Bond and is is absolutely heinous libido for that long not that she actually does because he sleeps with several women in between but you yeah. know, why why dwell <laughs> on these things it's the 60s whatever yeah. So um everyone so was meet, safe then yeah it was great there was nothing wrong could happen so it was it was um we meet sylvia trench and she's playing baccarat at the at the casino and um she she's introduced to a man who is comfortably beating her at every hand of baccarat and she she introduces herself as Trench Sylvia Trench, to which the man she's talking to introduces himself as Bond James Bond.
1: Yeah, which is le, le, hmm. this. Let me just say, in the history of all of cinema, no question for me, this is the greatest introduction of any movie character ever. It's it's th- definitely those three over. words.
0: Yes, no, it's it's a great sequence. I mean you definitely I think this is up with all the, the most famed like Orson Welles' introduction of the third man. You know, this is just one of those absolutely iconic sequences. And it's it's kinda interesting because obviously Bond, James Bond, has gone down to the lexicon. That's the way James Bond introduces himself. But it's interesting cause he is actually riffing off the way that Sylvia Trench introduces herself, who's not exactly the most uh remembered character in the franchise. So um, kind of kind yeah. of an interesting an interesting thing. And I, I didn't really realize that till rewatching it this time that there's um, he's he's kind of she sets the tone, I guess.
1: Yeah, um, he's, he's sort of it's sort of an almost sarcastic re- remark back to yeah. her how she says her says her name.
0: And, and it worked. It really works. And then, weirdly enough, he gives her a business card that has his name and a phone number on it. Which, do secret agents mm-hmm. even have that? I, I
1: and really... and pres- presumably his address and how to break in when he's not there.
0: That's true, because she, she totally breaks into his house and plays golf in one of his shirts, which seems a little rude, honestly, getting... I mean, like, fair <laughs> enough. You know, if you're up for it, cool. But, I mean, like, she takes his clothes and everything without, you know... Uh, I don't know. It's things, times have changed. That seems a little bit... Over the top, the, isn't it? The, like, I mean, the movie trope is that the shirt is for the morning after. As she, she really just goes, she oversteps it, which, which is kind of cool. That that his first, his first girlfriend, quote unquote, air quotes, manically in the sky, um, as we try and project some kind of feminist edge on the early James Bond movies, which will be something of a chore. <laughs> um, that uh, that she's forthright uh, enough to just do whatever she wants. So uh, that that brings us to James Bond. Um, he's dapper. He's suave. He's he's cool he works for MI6 which is the uh, i didn't actually realize this until recently i didn't realize MI6 was actually is actually the british secret service and oh, yeah. I, I never i never got past MI5 which is national security and MI6 is one higher which is secret service and i like to imagine that there's an MI7 that deals with extraterrestrial affairs and then there's an MI08 I guess MIA would be the next one who uh, is just a group of anglican vicars that try and spy on God and I want that <laughs> I want that to be the setup for for England and and the anglican vicars they just they, they they're constantly trying to get warrants for a, a wiretap on God and of uh-huh. course they can't because that's really difficult but they keep just like say, feeding rumors to the politicians like I've just heard word that God may not save our gracious queen and they they immediately give them more money to investigate that's not followed up in the James Bond series. That's entirely my own theory of super-secret super secret British Secret Service agencies. But Bond is down in MI6, which is actually a real thing, but yeah. uh, probably not entirely as real as James the James Bond version.
1: He's uh, he, Yeah, he's in MI6, and he's a commander in the uh, British Navy.
0: Oh, he's, well, there you go. So he sees yeah. lonely for it just at sea. No wonder he gets so much tail when he's out on land. Jeez. Okay. Actually, that makes sense because he does a little bit of action in a boat in this one, so he knows his way around.
1: Good yeah, for him. Makes perfect sense.
0: Takes uh, all time together. A lot of work went into this. So... um <laughs> The, the opening assassination happens in Jamaica, which, of course, is a British colony um drops communication. It was a British agent. So James Bond is brought in immediately. And I guess we'll, we'll go through uh, some elements here, which are, again, immediately established in the franchise as recurring elements. We have M played by Bernard Lee, who is the the head up of MI6. He's uh, the commander who gives James his orders. But just before he goes in to meet M, he of course meets Miss Moneypenny, played right. originally by Lois Maxwell, who is kind of, I guess, James Bond's foil. He's the one woman that he James Bond pretty much jumps in bed with everyone, but Money Penny is a different proposition. She's kinda of like his his flirty Kind of, they they have this thing where they they kind of rep throw rapport at each other, and and uh, but but you know it's a will they won't they kind of scenario. They both know what's going on, so it's it, it honestly it kind of works. It's kind of a fun little interlude. It kind of brings in a, a tone of playfulness to the series before we get down to the business of murdering people abroad.
1: Oh yeah, they they have a lot of fun together as the series progresses, and even a few genuinely heartfelt moments between those two characters.
0: Yeah, Money a- Penny's a concerned fun. about about uh, Bond's safety, which no one Everyone else is like James, you've just got to do this; it's your job. And Money Penny actually worries about him, which is you know a little bit endearing. That's true. But and really, also, more
1: more not so much his safety as to so when can he safely return to the office to take her out to dinner, sort of thing. That's true.
0: Also, Connery comes in here and he just throws his hat and just gets it on the the hook, which is oh, yeah, uh, super cool. And I wonder how many takes that took. That's like a Jackie Chan thing. I would like were there special effects involved in that, or did Sean Connery just practice throwing the hat across the room to like perfectly hook onto the?
1: Oh, the that thing? is that is a one hundred percent legitimate lat lat uh, lat hat toss, as far as I'm concerned. I,
0: I I don't want anyone to deflate the myth. That's a yeah. it's a great intro, and again, it just established that bond. Is just he's just super cool. He just he does what he wants to do. Also, I think it's worth mentioning at this point in his meeting with Money how British are the James Bond movies? They are so British that I have to notice in this scene that on the filing cabinet in the back right of the shot behind Money Penny's desk, there's just a kettle randomly on the filing cabinet. Don't know why yep. that is. Oh, it's, always have to have your tea nearby. Tea nearby. Yeah, but I, like, I think it's an old steam kettle. I, you can heat them on a filing cabinet. I don't know why it's there, but it's there. Um, So we'll, we'll talk about production design a little bit later on. I don't know if that was a chosen conscious thing or just one of those weird accidents, but I thought it was kind of very a very fun little element. So uh, Bond Bond goes through the door and meets M. He also meets... Uh, we come to know him as Q, but in this movie, he's Major Boothroyd. He's really a non-character in this movie, but uh, yeah,
1: you know, this Q is Brand- his only appearance. Um, yeah. This guy's appearance as Q, so to speak, and he gives Bond his first uh, quote-unquote gadget, which in this case is his gun that he uses for the remainder <laughs> of the series, the it's, the Walther PPK.
0: Yeah, he's he's credited to Major Boothroyd. Honestly, he might as well be the gun man he, he shows up and he's like hello you need a gun here is a gun take the gun <laughs> and then he leaves and like of course the, the role would go on um the the actor who played him was peter branch who was apparently not available in subsequent films he would have gone on to beq they asked him but he wasn't available for the next film so they replaced him with uh desmond desmond Llewellyn or yeah. Llewellyn, i'm not sure because welsh is a hell of a language and um, so Desmond Llewellyn uh, took it, took it over and, of course, became the Q, the head of the Q branch, who we all know and love. Who honestly, I think it's Desmond Llewellyn. Did he appear in more Bond movies than anyone else? I think he might have.
1: Oh, yeah. He I, is in 13 of the Bond films, if I am not mistaken.
0: That's that's even less than I think. Yeah. He's yeah, he's he's iconic. He's of course, headed Q Branch gives as you say the gadgets. In this movie, there are no gadgets, which is something that's a little bit unusual. They they up the ante mm-hmm. on that later on. But he gives him his Walter PPK, which is of course James Bond's uh, signature gun throughout the series. Um, a little kind of neat, uh, nice little little gun that fits neatly in a shoulder holster without ruining the the lines of a good tux, of a good you know hand tailored tuxedo. you know, you know like. Yeah, always when like no hand cannons like dirty Harry, like this is very British affair.
1: And uh, just a slight correction on my part. Uh seventeen films Desmond Llewelyn is in SQ. Seven he that's, goes, that's yeah, pretty good haul. He survives from uh from from uh Connery to uh Brosnan.
0: To and that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And I think yeah. I, I think the only reason he stopped coming back was maybe because he died. <laughs>
1: he, he did die. And he actually this is really sad. He died not from old age, but he died in a car accident. And I think he was on a way to a publicity event where he was going to do interviews. So he if he could, he probably would have kept going.
0: I'm sure they would have had him back because, I mean, like I say Q when, when when Bond meets Q is always like the one of the best scenes in every Bond oh, movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Well,
1: pay attention, 007.
0: Yeah, <laughs> as he introduced him to all manner of just ridiculous stuff. Actually, this brings some of that I have just we won't dwell on this too long. But talking about early introductions to James Bond,
1: Jake, did you ever see James Bond Jr.? No, and I'm not really familiar with what that is.
0: Okay, James Bond Jr. was a cartoon series that was produced in the 90s sometime. I don't know who made it, Canada, probably. They made all of the terrible cartoons that I was of the perfect age as an adolescent that I would just watch mm. whatever was on television when I came home from school. It basically it was basically... Uh, Everyone was was James. It was a weird thing where James Bond Junior was James Bond's nephew, I guess, and he was going to a, an elite boarding school or something. And Brains was like Hugh's relative, and there was some brawny surfer dude who I think was supposed to make it like more hospitable to Americans. I have no idea. It was and uh, literally one of the only things I remember is that like uh, Brains used to like hack people with like a game console. It was it was a terrible show, um, but. It was it was bringing Bond to the younger generation. Probably not the most uh, successful thing. I feel like I'm somewhere along the way, I might watch it, an episode or two of it, refresh my memory. Um, but okay, I was just curious if you if you had ever seen that. I don't know if it was before your time or just no interest. Um, either
1: yeah, I think I uh, I think I missed the boat on that one. If I'm I'm looking at it right now, I do not recognize any of this.
0: Okay, yeah, no, you should you should check out an episode or two just for. You know, wow! They will they will show children anything, uh, and that's a wonderful thing. How long, long may it continue? Um,
1: I would uh, I would be so bold as to say that uh, I think a lot of the Bond films are perfectly suitable for children. So uh, cut out the <laughs> middleman and just give them the good stuff right away. That's what yeah, I. See. That
0: would be that would be the why thing. I felt I probably thought I was probably really uppity and insufferable as as a teenager or as an ad- as an adolescent. I guess when I saw this because I probably had seen a number of Bond films, so it's probably probably that ass kid who's just like oh no that's not like in the movies at all you don't even understand you know and the it's like comparing it to the cartoon i can't was it james bond jr where they reversed the polarity of thor's hammer that might have happened in that show i'm really not sure that might have been another <laughs> yeah I it was another you. <laughs> yeah no because literally thor may have appeared in in james bond jr that's entirely likely but um
1: you know wh- whatever and um, that's one. Uh, that's one cinematic universe we're never going to see today.
0: No, no, that that has absolutely nothing and nothing to do with the major franchise. And we will now steer away from James Bond Junior. and possibly never mention it again. Um. So, so where where were we? Okay. So M tells Bond something's Bond gone gets wrong in the Jamaica. Mission. Yeah. So, but yeah, he gets the mission. And it's weird because they tell him they booked his flight to. The, it's kind of weird actually the way he says it because he booked his ticket to Jamaica and he just tells him to go, which is kind of interesting because honestly, it's like, does Bond fly business class or what? Like, it just feels like, you know, in future things he'd have like the British. Agency would have like their own military airplane or something. This just sounds like Bond just showed up at Heathrow the next morning and just got on just got on a plane to Jamaica, which is pretty much what happened because he shows up at an airport in Jamaica next, which I guess makes sense if he's. And, he's uh,
1: uh- uh- yeah, and when he shows up at the airport, we get our uh, the next uh, time the Bond theme plays is just him strolling across the uh, airport lobby.
0: All right, and then that that brings us into. I mean, this is really I guess where the film starts proper. This is, uh, you know, the the layout. We're not going to go through all the plot at this point, but this this introduces. We're immediately introduced to. Uh, we catch a glamp, glimpse of a mystery man who looks tailing Bond, uh, and yeah. who turns out to be Felix Leiter, who is uh, our CIA operative. Uh, yeah, played who is, by uh, a,
1: played mm-hmm. by a young Jack War uh, Jack Lord, Mister Hawaii Five O himself. Before that's he right, was a big star.
0: Right. So, so Felix would, he's a recurring character in the Bond universe. I feel like he's kind of, he's kind of inserted, I feel, just give uh, a, the, an American touch to the the series. He's kind of like the, the Bond universe is very quintessentially British. Um so this gives kind of Americans, uh, America always needs for, for the marketing to the, the US audience is always, I think, a need to, or a feel that there's a need to insert an American randomly into everything just so. You know, people can like go like, "Yeah, I was born in the same place he was, so now I can understand this movie." Which might be greatly underselling Americans' intellect, but it's still done to this day, where they just randomly jam Americans into movies so that people, so Americans, will watch them. But um, Felix is is an interesting character, and he'll he'll come back.
1: Yeah. And he's definitely from uh, he. So he is in the the um, the Fleming novels and the uh, the trouble with the Felix Leiter's in the film series is that every time he appears, he's played by a different actor. So he's yes. definitely one of the most inconsistent characters that will come across. Um, I think uh, I think this first one though, Jack Lord. I think he's the best Felix that we have. He does. he does. He doesn't. He doesn't get a lot of
0: screen time. So I think he really he invests kind of a quiet, kind of cool through the few scenes he has. And, of course, he shows up. He's originally posited as maybe being a bad guy. And then James Bond meets up with his chauffeur, or a guy he's collecting him at the airport. But, of course, James Bond has already figured out that no one's supposed to collect him at the airport. So this chauffeur That's is cool, a yeah. bad guy. So, and, But we don't know where Felix fits into the equation just yet. So Bond is taken in by the chauffeur, and uh, the chauffeur tries to kill him because he's actually Dr. No agent. So Bond, this is our first, uh, well, I our third death or so of the film, because we have two assassinations of the British agents at start. So this um, this this agent tries to tries to get the jump on Bond, but of course Bond is is ahead of him. So this guy commits suicide with cyanide capsule in a cigarette. Um, before before Bond can even interrogate him, honestly, I, I've complained about this before. I feel like he commits suicide really quickly. Like it, he doesn't let, like he he doesn't let Bond even <laughs> like let him know how he's gonna torture him.
1: Well, or that's anything. the that's the spy world. Once your position's compromised, you got to get out of there quick. And uh, is he a spy, uh, <laughs> Maybe a very incompetent one. I feel like I
0: just feel like he was unhappy with his life before this happened, and he was just looking for an excuse to pull the trigger. I don't know. I feel like he's just in a bad place, yeah. and he ended up he working for Doctor No.
1: Yeah, he answered an ad for uh, Doctor No's uh, henchman. All he needed was a valid driver's license, and uh, even he couldn't hack it out in the world. So yeah, that's uh, that's what
0: seems like. He purposely botched the mission. He pretty pretty much uh, like he really he commits suicide quickly, and it leads into uh, James Bond drives him back dead in the back of the car, and then he uh, he he tells someone to look after him, which I guess is kind of almost like the first quip of the film. Where yeah. where he he drops back a dead body kind of reminds me again as I mentioned before like Arnie in the eighties and like Commando where he kills guy in the plane and says you know don't bother my friend he's dead tired you know it's that, we're, we're, I feel like Bond really laid out a lot of these templates um, I'm, I'm trying to think of anything earlier that treated death with such levity <laughs> <It> <laughs> no, was, I, I can't think of
1: anything for sure.
0: Yeah, no, I I feel like death was much more serious in most other films in the fifties. <laughs> it was like a sad thing, and this time around it's just like, no, he's dead, and the world's fine without him. So um, we we progress on. We'll fast forward through some of the other plot stuff. It pretty much becomes yeah, yeah. obvious that that Bond is um Doctor No is the way he's got to go. He's got Crab Key, which is um an island no one's supposed to go to. Bond is investigating this. He finds out about Crab Key through various other agents on the island. I, I, this one of the things that struck me about this movie, um, And it's that James Bond is like figured as like an investigator, you know, as part of being an agent as being a spy. He has to really, you know, do research. And honestly, in this one, he pretty much just gets shuttled around. He goes to the place where the agents were assassinated at the beginning of the film. He finds a receipt for Professor Dent, you know, for rock samples. And he's like, that's a little unusual. I'll go talk to him. And then like a lot of the rest of the movie isn't really bond investigating anything it's just dr no sending people to kill bond which i just feel like maybe if dr no took his foot off the gas a little bit you know maybe played a little cool and maybe maybe bond would have taken a little more time to find him but you know that's that's up for debate i guess um i feel like mm
1: -hmm. with the with these sequences here with bond i think um you know, as, as big that, that the series gets, I think Dr. No really has some really nice scenes of some genuine sleuthing on Bond's part. Like when he goes to his hotel room, we see him sprinkle dust on the latches of his briefcase and um, like pluck a hair and put it across the door of his closet to see if anyone tampers with it. And watching rewatching this film, after I've seen it so many times, I've sort of sat back and try to contextualize my experience with uh, that of a 1962 audience. And I can just imagine like all these little... Minuscule things that Bond was doing back then just felt so grand and exciting at the time like nobody had ever seen such a thing so I think that's really really part of why Dr. No holds up so well is that it not only set this template but it just was really original in its own right on how to make how to make doing things like that look cool.
0: It's true, and it's really nice little lo-fi things. I just feel like his investigation is very much Doctor No comes from. I feel like Doctor No is very much from the Scooby Doo school of villainy. Um, and <laughs> we'll, we'll get into him a little bit later, but like he has an island, and he just spreads rumors about the island being inhabited by a dragon and stuff like. That. like just just put out ah, a yes, private property sign. Just yeah, we'll we'll get to the dragon <laughs> as we progress, which is one of the weirder elements. I just feel like if Doctor No just like put on more of a yeah, normal business face you know it, it, there's a general a rule i feel in investigation which is if there's one place that everyone is scared to go that's probably where the bad stuff's happening and i feel it's very clearly signposted here um but anyway i guess the first main character the james bond encounters is professor dent who's an interesting uh, an mm-hmm. interesting example within the franchise He's played by anthony dawson who as an interesting note of trivia uh, goes on to play uh, Blofeld who's one of the other uh, super villains of James Bond probably the super villain really of the James Bond of the early films Uh, he actually played Blofeld's body
1: He's, yeah, later. he's the hand stroking the cat. He's yeah, not, he's, he won't be the voice
0: because Blofeld, of course, is not. He we don't see his face for several films. He's he's a uh, kind of a disembodied evil. And um, so so Anthony Dawson plays Professor Dent in this movie. He's just a henchman of Doctor No, but he would he would actually ever recurring role in in two of the later films as a as a head henchman, but kind of in the, just just the guy, as you say, stroking the cat. It's kind of an interesting one. Uh, Blofeld we're going to be played by several other actors as a. Go and eventually they'd show his face, etc. So um, Professor Dent is, well, I guess, what's interesting about Professor Dent. We as we fast forward through it, he's he's an agent of Doctor No, but is Professor Dent's death is, I guess, the first kind of really, int- I guess, the first crossroads of a James Bond as a character. I feel like he's there's a couple of deaths up until then. In fact, on the yeah. way, I think this uh, he evades the three blind mice who are chasing him and he evades them by... He, he he doesn't really kill them himself. He just drives better than them, and they just drive off the side of a cliff, and the and, car...
1: Yeah, the... Yeah, they have one of those great old movie deaths where once the car gets halfway down the mountain, all the windows just explode from the inside and everyone is burnt to crisp. It's one first. of
0: those things. Honestly, 1960s cars, just a certain amount of jostling would just blow them right up. That was just a terrible, <laughs> terrible design flaw. Yeah, the, the, the warranty only, on those was terrible back then. It was. It was tough. They didn't fill in the potholes. I mean, cars were just exploding left and right on, on country roads. Um, so yeah, he, he, kills, uh, he kills the the, uh, the three blood mice. And as you know um earlier on uh, when we were talking about this this previously uh bond delivers uh, he kind of delivers one way drops the 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 henchman back and he says you know take care of my friend who's dead in the back seat but i yeah. feel like as you say i think like his first real fully formed making light of death quip is when he he goes up to the guy some poor road worker who has no idea what's going on just seen a bunch of men die in a Hideous fireball, which must be a deeply disturbing thing. And then just some Scottish guy just walks up to him and just says, uh, I think they were on the way to a funeral. And the man just leaves, which is absolutely must be baffling. And I, I imagine it just haunted that poor man for the rest of his life. He had no idea what was going on. Um but that's how he, he so so Bond dispatches those by they're chasing him, they're they're aiming to kill him. Uh so it's self-defense effect He evades them, they kill themselves. But uh, Professor Dent is not self-defense. He this, this is his first Bond's first real kill in the film, and he shoots yeah. an
1: unarmed man. This is a this is a real turning point, as you said, for the character because up until then it's it's sort of been a, a, a lighter adventure. And, and yes, we've seen some death and, and Bond has um essentially made fun of the dying twice but uh <laughs> this is uh but this is really where I, the the audience is shown that oh bond is not someone you want to fuck with and he will shoot an unarmed man to prove that he is better than you yeah it's and to lay out the it's, scene I guess, it's, it's, it's cold and but just so oh so perfect and so calculated it's wonderful yeah
0: yeah, so 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 basically, uh, Professor Dent comes in to assassinate Bond, and he shoots the pillows. Bond has set up pillows in the bed that look like a body in the bed, which I don't even know where that. That's like such a that trope was. I literally just is, yesterday I is saw this the uh,
1: earliest of that uh, example.
0: Yeah. I feel like it can't be. I feel like that's even older. Um, I just just yesterday I was watching an episode of the Mindy Project uh, that was put on my TV. I don't really watch that show that often, but the newest, se- the the first episode of the newest season The Mindy Project, they had the same thing: pillows in a bed, and and people didn't realize it wasn't a person. Ferris Bueller. Throughout the years, it's just it's such a ubiquitous movie thing. So Professor Dent shoots. the the pillows thinking it's Bond and it isn't and he uses all his bullets. He doesn't know that at the time because he's not as good as James Bond. He's not as battle savvy as James Bond. So Bond interrogates him and Professor Dent is quietly trying to pull his gun back to him, kind of putting his foot on a blanket trying to pull the gun back and Bond seems to not notice this but we find out he actually knew exactly what Dent was doing because Dent grabs a gun and goes to shoot Bond and he's used all his bullets and Bond knew he never posed a threat and then Bond just executes him straight up. Yeah. Which, which, yeah, lays out the double O number as being someone who can basically kill with impunity, that this is part of his his function as as a an operative of the British Empire is that he can just pull the trigger on whoever he deems to be uh, dispensable within the mission, which is a kind of really dark element. And I guess we'll play that that gets played with throughout the series. And um, it's pretty it's. It's handled pretty lightly in the early movies, I think, because it's pretty much whoever Bond kills had it coming. It's pretty pretty open and shut case.
1: Yeah, um, certainly so one of the a- elements to be taken from um,
0: from Fleming's novels. Definitely, yeah. And another interesting thing actually about this is prior to Professor Dent arriving, we have Miss Taro who's uh, another author of Doctor No, who, this is something I feel like we should discuss this trope or just at least bring this to light because it's not the first time, it it is the first time but it's not the last time it's going to happen in James Bond movies. James Bond knows that Miss Taro is an agent of Doctor No's and has his death in mind and is basically a villain and he's still just shacks up with her and has sex with her and then just dis- and then has her arrested and i'm just that's ballsy a little bit like i feel like if you know the, if you know she wants to kill you uh maybe maybe don't even risk it but no that's not how james bond operates
1: and i like how she sets up to try to kill bond several times and he finds his way not only through her traps but also his way to her and she's really sort of surprised that he made it to her alive and he figures that she has to go through with the plan. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the really yeah that that is
0: actually a weird point that it ends up with with her having to kind of like go along as part of the mission with that she's that they're seducing each other kind of even though we clearly know they weren't. Um, so kind of a, a kind of an interesting uh, element to it. So anyway, um, I suppose at this point it's probably good we go back to Felix Leiter who reveals himself James Bond to be a CIA agent and he is working with Quarrel. Played yes. by John Kitzmiller, who's another American agent, um, who's I guess the film's sole African American uh, representative. Even though the film's in Jamaica, the Three Blind Mice are, are Jamaicans, but this is not a film that's uh, very culturally diverse. Uh, I think we can admit. Um, so Quarrel is he's interesting. He's he sort of he actually has more screen time than Felix,
1: honestly and um, coral is great he's uh <laughs> he's charming he's jovial he it really is and back then in 1962 to have the world's greatest seeker agents primary uh partner be an african-american gentleman is really really progressive of the era and of the time to see something like that and i think it's in in part of what makes coral so such a wonderful ally in the bond universe he he is an interesting foil to bond certainly because
0: um yeah, he 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 gets more fe- more screen time than Felix certainly, and he does. Yeah. He he really works, and he works in the field. Felix really doesn't do anything in this movie. He just kind of smokes a cigarette and like says he he knows what's going on, and he He's does. Like, oh but... yeah,
1: it's uh it's Doctor No. Have fun. That's yeah, really right. all he does. that's that's pretty which much is, it. Which is which is really the extent of um Felix's appearance in all of the films. He's usually. Uh, whenever Bond travels to a new location, generally in one of, in America, he usually meets with Felix first, and Felix says, "All right, we're tailing this guy," and then Bond will follow him, and that'll be the the villain. And Felix is never really seen or heard from again for the rest of the film.
0: Yeah, which it's kind of funny that Felix is played by a different actor because honestly, he takes far less risks than James Bond. But um, so so Quarrel is is I'd say an interesting an interesting guy. I feel like the only my only issue with Quarrel will. We'll, We'll progress to it. But the dragon. Quarrel doesn't get the dragon. I don't understand how that works. Yeah. Let's. I mean there's a dragon later on in the movie. And it's clearly it's a car. (laughs) Like it's literally. It's a car. uh, With some decals of a dragon on it. Um, And it's like literally if someone showed up to. Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift and looked at one of the cars with a dragon drawn on the side of it and actually thought it was a dragon. It makes no sense. Quarrel operates diesel motorboats for a living and he still can't (laughs) recognize the sound of an engine in a car. So, while Quarrel is kind of an interesting autonomous agent who is, you know, kind of on a Almost like he—he he, like you say—he works on a very level peg with James Bond for a lot of it. see he, he takes his orders. clearly Bond is in charge, but you know he's—he's he's a you know a useful, valid operative in the field. And when it comes to the dragon, it's just like Jesus, you're an idiot. What is wrong with you? But um, so be yeah. it. Can't have everything, I guess. So this brings us to. Uh, I'm, tra- I'm trying to think. I guess he. We, we, let, let's go straight to Doctor No. We might go well to as Doctor's Nose
1: Island, and we get the uh, second greatest introduction of a character in cinematic history with Miss Honey Rider, the first Bond girl. Right.
0: Honey Rider, which is not the worst Bond name, or uh, Bond girl name, that will, will appear. It gets it gets darker, folks. Um, but Honey Rider, even James Bond laughs at her name in the movie, which is an interesting feature to leave in. But uh, yes, Honey Rider, played by Ursula Andress, who has this incredible intro where she strides in in her white bikini, which is is credited in pop culture. But, uh, they, they claim that the James Bond and, and Dr. No helped launch the bikini in popular culture. So uh, I guess if that's a thing, that's that's uh, very noble of them. I have no idea if that's accurate or not. Um, I don't really remember because when I grew up, bikinis were not particularly spectacularly rare. Uh, well, actually, they were because I grew up in Ireland where it's very cold. So uh, <laughs> not, not so much there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so we have Ursula Andress who who appears as Honey Rider, who's a very, uh, she's an interesting character too because we we talk about progressiveness in these in, like the James Bond movies are not going to really win a lot of awards uh, for you know political correctness et cetera, Not the early ones they they really they they have you know. A pretty pretty limited world view, and that that was pretty typical for the films of the time. But I gotta admit, like when Ursula Andress walks in there and she's got her knife in her belt, uh, she's collecting seashells for whatever reason, just so she can sell them. Apparently, that's the yeah. best job she can come up with. But honestly, like Andress is such a statuesque kind of a character. She's really she looms almost over Sean Connery. I've got to admit, like in the in the establishing shots where they first meet, she looks like she could kick the crap out of Sean Connery. Um which is an interesting introduction. She's just so I don't know, just so uh physical an embodiment of just this kind of powerful person. It's it's very interesting. She's obviously very sexy, but I don't know, I just feel there's a very strong presence to her as well, which is uh, maybe something that's overlooked a little within the the Bond girl archetype.
1: Yeah, I think um, part of the problem with Honey Rider being overlooked, I mean, yeah, she does have a silly name, but I agree with all the points that you mentioned. It's just that much like Coral, who's also a fantastic character, is that she believes in the gosh darn dragon she that does. haunts the
0: island. There's a few things. One of the other things, let's let's just talk about Honey Rider. She she never went to school Uh with, with her father. They travelled all over the world. She never went to school, so instead of, in, in lieu of a formal education, she just read the the encyclopedia, and she's made it from A to T, uh, yeah. which which means that Honey Rider's a woman who doesn't know what wallabies or xylophones are. <laughs> and this is a woman who, she doesn't, she doesn't understand the dragon, but it's just, well, Dr. No didn't, like, posit that there was a yeti on the island, because she would have been confused by that, too. She wouldn't have known what that is. Like, how do you... Like, we're supposed to believe this woman literally only knows about the world through encyclopedias. It's a very weird quirk. They don't dwell on it that much, but it's it's a very strange introduction to a character. But uh, so, be, so be it. Uh, she, that, that's Honey Rider. She, um, she has a very odd dress sense in that she arrives in in her bikini, comes and wades in out of the ocean in her bikini, and then puts on a very light shirt and then continues to wade through water, which makes the shirt very wet and transparent, which I don't know why she bothered putting on the shirt, to be honest, but so be it. She, she obviously knows what's going on. Um, so yeah, that, that brings us to, uh, Ursula Andrews, who is really, I guess she is legitimately the original Bond girl and the Bond girl will go through so many transformations through the series, which we'll, we'll look at. Um, but she really, she sets it up. Um, and then, uh, and I guess I suppose it's worth noting at this point, um, she, she's an interesting choice, Bonger, because she uh, Ursula Andress is a Swiss German actress and they, they do spray tan her a little bit and they dubbed her and um how, yeah. how many of the women how many women in this film actually speak with their own voice
1: so yeah it's i'm glad you brought that up so the only only woman who actually speaks with her own voice is uh lois maxwell as money penny everyone else is dubbed by this german actress named nikki van der Zyl, which kind of explains why all of the females in the film sound exactly the same and um, the thing about the Bond films is that in the early days, like, at least for, through the first three films, is that almost all of the characters were dubbed by somebody else. Yeah, um, you know, obviously Connery and a select so like few had carried their own voices, but uh, yeah, you get a lot of that weird, that weird dubbing look that the that some of these earlier films have. That uh, for un- viewers who are may not be expecting it, it would it, something would look a bit off. But um, I think the ADR uh, works really. I mean, it, it looks like it's really well done here. Yeah, it's, it's no. fine. It's
0: it's kind of a curious creative decision because you say if she's if she's dubbed by a German woman, Andres is Swiss German, so I'm not like I don't really know what they were going for there. But uh, yeesh, fair enough, that's what they decided to do. Um, it's it's an interesting technique. But this means Miss Taro was also dubbed by the same woman. Um, that's right. Does that does that mean Marguerite lawars who who is actually Miss Jamaica she has a small role in this film as a photographer which she dubbed as well then I
1: guess uh, I think she may have been as well yeah I, yeah. yeah so I so that's weird.
0: Was. So, so she she plays a small role as, as she's another lady in this film. She plays a role. She's a, a sinister photographer who tries to take Do, uh, Sean Connery's photo, and he captures her in a scene that I really love because it's in a, it's in a like a crowded dance club, and they literally quarrel, grabs her, and starts dragging her to the table, and she starts screaming like "Let me go, stop!" and literally no one on the dance floor even turns to look at them. Uh, which is a really damning indictment of 1960s culture, I feel, uh, without yeah. anyone really pointing it out. Uh, and then she cracks a, a flash, an old-style movie camera flash. She cracks a glass and, like, scratches Quarrel's face, and he doesn't even budge because he's a badass. That um, is
1: awesome, I yeah, just have to
0: say. Yeah, he's he's pretty badass for a man who believes in the dragon. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's always going oh, to come back to the dragon. It's always the damn dragon, yeah. So,
0: yeah, so, so they, they walk around the island. We, we've got... We, so so like getting back to where we are in the plot, we've got Honey Rider, we've got Quarrel, we've got James Bond, they on the island. I just want to make, at this point, let's let's just have a quick talk about um, Ken Adams, I believe. Uh, Ken Adams did the production yeah. design this movie, and he did... He he talks in interviews that he did the production design of this movie super cheap. He say, in interviews it varies between about fourteen to twenty thousand pounds total production design for this whole movie. Uh, yeah. Ken Adams, of course, he went on to become established one of the great production designers. He'd later work on like Doctor Strange Love and other films. Um, the film never looks cheap. It really has this fantastic look to it. And I just I, I feel like I bring it up here because it's a great scene. Where they're walking, and they go into like this. This because uh, they way down the river, and there's this sign that that warns of danger ahead, and it's got this fantastic cartoonish kind of skull drawn on it, and it's this fantastically weird element within it. It's a very like amateurish looking sign, but it fits the context perfectly, and I feel like that's something that maybe Adam's put together on the last minute, but it just fits the tone. Perfectly, and then you know, as we we move in to we finally meet Doctor No. Uh, Doctor No's whole pad is this fantastic hodgepodge of design elements that Ken Adams bought from just secondhand stores, and he just kind of put together this weird amalgam of of elements. Yeah, um, even and it,
1: uh, even, hmm. even earlier when when Professor Dent gets the mission from Doctor No to kill Bond, he meets um, Doctor No, who's at this point sort of a disembodied voice in this room. And the room is literally a chair in a corner and a skylight. And yes. that's all Ken Adam puts in there. But it just looks so amazing. And so it beautiful. does. The, it's, the minimalism it's, is, works beautifully.
0: Yeah, it, it's like he knows where to add and where to take back. And then the, I guess the contrast to that is Dr. Knows uh, kind of quarters, which is this wonderful, l- lush, almost like 70s playboy Kind of layout, but it's got these classical, like antique piece of furniture, and then it's got something that I think was, it's really clever. Because honestly, I never even gave it a second thought in the movie. They have a, a huge aquarium with these mm-hmm. giant fish, yeah. and uh, apparently, the movie was operating such a small budget that they got stock footage of fish, and they were small fish, but the stock footage was magnified, so they were giant. So they had footage of small fish that looked giant. But they had to fill a whole wall with it, which made no sense. Why would the fish be so large? So they just throw in a line about how Dr. Knows Aquarium is a convex glass, which magnifies the fish. And it's just a throwaway line in the movie, but it completely explains it. It doesn't make you think like it doesn't feel like a weird element at all to me it, i never even gave it a thought and then when i read about it later on i was like oh that that makes perfect sense that's a really clever way to cover your tracks when you have very little money and you just kind of got to do something because you've just got an empty wall and you have no money to to fill it otherwise so you have to use the footage of the fish that you got um but yeah, I suppose,
1: they- let, let's Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, I was just going to say briefly that the, that the budget for the film you mentioned it was like twenty thousand for the production design. The budget for this film is only a million dollars, which nowadays would be the crafty table on a Daniel Craig yeah. film.
0: Yeah, pretty much. I'm I'm pretty sure if you gave Daniel Craig a million dollars, he might just like look at you for a slight amount of time, and that would be it. Like <laughs> can't be, like like you might you might earn his disdain for exactly 20 seconds and then you'd be done and they made this whole movie for that which is which is really impressive and like i say, the movie does not look cheap it doesn't look in any way lacking which i think is a really an incredible ode to people like ken adams between the production design and terence young just cleverly you know kind of not focusing on anything that doesn't need to be focused on keeping it very much on task so we, we finally meet Dr. No, and Dr. No is, of course, the first Bond supervillain. And he, That's is, right. um, he is of Chinese descent. Um, of course, it's it's a bit weird. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about Ursula Andress playing, uh, you know, playing a Jamaican-ish kind of woman. I, I, she's Swiss-German, but she's kind of played up as being like a tropical beauty. Um, of course, Dr. No is played by Joseph Wiseman who is a Canadian Jewish actor, but he's playing a a Chinese uh, actor, a person of Chinese origin in this movie, which uh, the the movies are not uh, this yellow face thing is it's just a spoiler alert people. This will come up again in the James Bond franchise.
1: Yeah. And it's important to note that, um, if a film like this, with this sort of decision was made today, it would just draw on a huge bed of controversy. But, um, you know, I like to think that the, the politics of James Bond are sort of frozen in time with the oh, era yeah. in which they're released. And so you, you kind of have to, I mean, you take it with a grain of salt. But I, you know, I think there's there's still a lot of fun to be had with these films, even if some of the choices back then aren't exactly up to up to snuff with some with some of the standards that uh, we have for ourselves today.
0: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's no one was doing you know, no one was really doing much better than this. This was this is the way it was. And while we can maintain a historical perspective on that, it's it's kind of like let's we, we can't exactly blame uh, institutional Hollywood racism and whitewashing on James Bond alone. They were no, just of part not. of the, They were part of the system. <clears throat> so so James Bond meets Dr. No, it's an instrument. Um because I, mean, I feel like the, the, there's a really interesting dynamic between James Bond and Doctor No which I think is very quintessential of the James Bond franchise generally it kind of sets up something that would be repeated which is that there's very kind of a class conscious element to these films yeah um, I'm, I'm reminded very much like say something of Renoir's Le Grand Illusion of a war film an anti-war film that was about uh, the, the First World War and um, if people haven't seen it it's, it's basically about uh, French officers in the First World War who were held in the German prisoner of war camp but what the the movie uh, kind of examines is the fact that the the French officers who were like aristocrats uh, kind of you know Elite social elites have really more in common with the German officers than they have with the the lower social class French soldiers they command, and that was part of the the uh, condemnation of of class structure within la grande Illusion was was this idea that there's a class element to war and to to adversarial uh, kind of uh, partnerships. That is not really discussed as this nationalism is actually not really superseded by class awareness. Um, and I think that comes in in this film as well, because James Bond and Dr. No are both really social elites. They sort of they sit down to have dinner together.
1: Yeah, which, which is a recurring theme in all the Bond films. Is yes. that they're very civilized and social with exactly the, the villains and adversaries. And uh, it's not like uh, if you were just to contrast it with something like Jason Bourne, he would just sort of kick in the door to your house and try to break your neck with a fork or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Jason Bourne just smash your head off the mahogany table, but Doctor No lays out a full spread of of dinner on the table, and they yeah. discuss they discuss their mutual their their goals. And Doctor No tries to recruit James Bond. And interesting enough, at one point uh, uh, accuses James Bond of being nothing more than a stupid policeman, which I think is an interesting an interesting insult. When we, I, I in 1962, I guess it wouldn't really be read as anything, but I guess with Jamaica as being a colonial. Kind of british empire colony and and the the changing role of James Bond over the years as the concept of colonialism became more taboo and the idea of British exceptionalism became more problematic or western exceptionalism so yeah. i thought, I think it was an interesting an interesting line to be inserted there is that it's not really challenged in the film, but I mean the idea that really Doctor. No just represents. Uh, another vision of society to MI6's vision of kind of governmental control and, and advocacy. So it's it's something that's out there. Um, they they have dinner. They discuss their plans. They they basically it's it's one of those things where it's very polite and everyone is it obeys all of the the, the edicts of, of proper etiquette for for eating dinner. But they obviously know that one of them is going to kill the other.
1: Yeah, um, he you know, introduces a uh, he introduces himself as a member of Specter stands right. for Memory Serves as Special Executive for Counterintelligence Terrorism Revenge and Extortion. Yes, which is
0: the worst acronym in cinema history. <laughs> I think it's I don't I don't understand why Specter has to be an acronym. Just yeah, if you're going to have a if you're going to have a super secret bad guy club, just just call it Specter if that's what you want to do. It doesn't have to stand for anything. Um but you know, so so they go. Uh, that yeah, he's he's a member of Spectre, which is a large organisation. Of course, Blofeld and people later on would also be be members of Spectre. They would become uh, regular adversaries of James Bond. Um, and of course, Doctor No is. Uh, we haven't really mentioned it. The whole reason this thing is kicking off, aside from the assassination of the British agent, is that Doctor No is felling British missiles and British rockets with an atomic ray. An atomic-powered satellite ray of some description, um, which there, there is no more science to be offered on that. Uh, you may invest your own interpretation of how, how such a thing would work, but that's what Dr. No is doing.
1: Yeah, there's really no uh, – it's just more of a we have power and this is how we're showing it sort of sort of plot line. There's not yeah. real – no no seeds for world domination yet.
0: Yeah, he's he's blackmailing America. He wants, he wants yeah. to blackmail the U.S. the U.S. government for lots of money so that he can presumably build another super swish pad under the ocean, because uh, those things can't be cheap. Uh, so anyway, uh, I guess we will we'll move on to to our next thing, which is um. I mean, speaking of the production design, I suppose our finale uh, takes place in the central control center of oh, yeah. um, of, the, of the 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 underground layer. Um, and, and of course, it's just a great set. I just love it because it's got like each section is laid out. Dr. No even goes through all the stages because he's, he's in the process of felling an American missile. And like
1: each section has a sign above it, above each control panel saying I what it is. And there's a guy with a clipboard standing right next to it, calling out the readings.
0: Yes, yeah, it's such like I mean, it's literally this is like Austin Powers didn't even make fun of it; they just recreated exactly what's in Doctor No, which is like this weird vision of a bureaucratic evil empire uh, where everyone like there's must be OSHA standards and like people taking notes and everything, and they probably like talking <laughs> the clipboard around the water cooler yeah. later. It's it, but it's such a great set.
1: Yeah, this is sort of like Ken Adams' money shot, and when I watched it, it really stuck out to me. And I, what I was reminded of um, was the scene in Alien where they first encounter the space jockey. It, it's really Alien is really sort of a claustrophobic film up to that point, and then they board the ship and find this this creature, and the camera really sort of pans out, and we get we get the to see the whole scope of the situation and and that's what in just this one long unbroken take we go through this whole set of all the all the gears and knobs and and meters that all these people are reading as it goes from one end of the room to the other and all and there's dozens of guards on control panels and uh so yeah it's it's really where the budget starts to show that it does. these films will become something grander than they are yeah
0: yeah this is definitely this would come in. It's interesting you mention Alien actually because I, I was reminded of Alien separately in the film because just prior to this uh, James Bond escapes from a cell and uh, by he escapes into the ventilation ducts of the cell which uh, mysteriously in the movie have like water flowing through them as well as air that's probably not how HVAC normally runs um, <laughs> but they're like the most spacious luxurious air vents in, in the history of cinema and we discussed this earlier because I feel like like, was this the first movie where uh, a hero just kind of escapes through her air ducts? Because they remind me, I say, like Alien 3, uh, there is the guy cleaning and the huge ginormous air duct with the fan and he gets pushed through the fan by the alien. We don't have anything quite so gory here, but just the concept of these giant air ducts. I feel like John McClane in Die Hard would have killed for air ducts like these
1: yeah so if anyone knows if this is the first film where somebody <laughs> escapes a room through an air duct let us let us know because we think it's the first
0: Yeah, I, I cannot recall early I mean again I go with the third man I mean they run through a sewer system but um, the sewer systems were like old hat by 1962 I don't remember anyone using the, the air ducts like this but uh, that's what James Bond does he escapes through the air ducts with uh, and, and he kicks him out and he, he finds Dr. No's control room and he does what, what anyone would would do in the control room he finds this one machine that has just a giant turny kind of handle on it and has a sign on it that says danger at a certain point and he turns the handle to the right until it goes up to the danger point and uh, and that that causes a meltdown and, and Dr. No's whole plan starts to sink
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the audience has to know somehow that what Bond is doing is (laughs) detrimental to the audience. So I think a big danger sign is appropriate. It's it's true. I
0: wonder, like, that guy's job doesn't seem that difficult because literally his job appears to only be to not turn the handle too far to the right, so it goes into the danger. Like, that's that's his job. But, but Sean Connery punches him out and just starts wheeling the, the thing crazy um, and ruins everyone's day, honestly. It was another day at the office for everyone. Uh, up until this point, man with the clipboard was just doing his job. And now suddenly uh, there's sirens going off and everything. And uh, we've got uh, Sean Connery and Doctor No face off against each other. And, and it's uh, it's it's weird, actually, because it's, it's not really... It's not a big fight. It's not like a. it doesn't feel like a big event. It feels like something very frantic as everyone's like everyone leaves. like the henchmen don't like gang up. Actually, an interesting point in this movie, there aren't really henchmen in this movie, uh, which would become a James Bond staple later on.
1: Yeah, just a few hired hands who uh, yeah. w- would kill if they need to. But no, uh, no notable henchmen yet. Yeah, no, President Probably comes closest.
0: Yeah, Dent did, and he really, he's really—he's just a—he's just a guy. I mean, he doesn't really have a thing. There's no—he's a geologist, which isn't really something. You're like in Goldeneye, the video game, you couldn't play Professor Dent <laughs> with his superior knowledge of rock formations. That—that uh, that never happened. So. um yeah, so, so the No and, and Connery face off, uh, and of course, Dr. No has his robot hands. He lost them in an accident earlier, which they don't really make much of it either. He punches through some glass without feeling anything, which I guess is part of his, his having superhuman hands. But his his robot hands are not enough to claw himself back to safety when uh, when, when James Bond basically kicks him down into boiling hot water, um, and and Dr. No sinks.
1: Yeah, there's no traction on those when he no, when no, it comes it to gripping a metal pipe.
0: Damn shame. You'd think he would have thought of that being the, the super architect he apparently is supposed to be. He should have put like ridges in him or something.
1: <laughs> oh
0: well, that's it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh so the the whole base explodes and um Felix Slider comes with the CIA and they rescue Bond and Honey Ryder. And, uh, and, and you had you had some an interesting observation about uh, Honey Rider's clothing in the final scenes. So this is something.
0: Let's, let's hear it. This, this is something interesting. I mentioned earlier about Honey Rider has some unusual dress sense because I say she comes in, in her bikini and then she puts on a shirt and then she goes waiting in water. So the shirt is just wet again. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, a weird thing I noticed watching this movie this time and uh, answers on a postcard if you can figure out any realistic reason for why this happens uh so honey rider is given an outfit by um by uh, dr no because he uh, like a good considerate host he dresses his his guests for dinner and so he he drugs them with
1: drugs their coffee yeah
0: i don't know why he drugs them honestly like this is just a buy time because dinner was running late they don't really explain (laughs) he just drugs them randomly and they wake up it's like it's time for dinner who knows Uh, what happens in in the interim to that but uh, so Honey Rider puts on she puts on like a top and a pink a pair of pink trousers and she wears those same clothes to dinner and then somewhere in the middle of dinner uh, Dr. No and James Bond have a disagreement on ideals and so uh, Honey Rider is seized by henchmen and dragged off to apparently some manner of torture and she's dragged away in those clothes and then just before Bond escapes he finds Honey Rider who's been again, Dr. No is posited as an amazing architect and a genius. He has a room that is literally just a storm duct, and uh, there's like a slope, a cement slope with some manacles attached to it, so apparently this was built for this very purpose, and, and uh Honey Rider is chained to this, this cement ground as it slowly fills with water to a point where she will drown, which is a very odd way to do things. But what I did notice is her trousers are gone at this point, and she doesn't get them back at any point. And I just, I cannot fathom where they went between her being dragged away for dinner, Her t- she's still wearing the blouse, like, they're going to drown her. It I don't know, was, like, were the pants a loner from, like, some other associate and they had to give them back and they were like well we're <laughs> gonna drown this lady so, not with my pants you're not yes i give those back i didn't know that was what was gonna happen so i don't really know what's happening there but uh so be it and um, i feel like they, they escape um, I and was, i was gonna say so so one of the things we're planning on doing in this is uh we're gonna as we, as we wrap up each film we're gonna we're gonna run the numbers on each film um, as, yes. as a useful thing. We're going we're gonna to keep a count on how things are going in the James Bond universe. And with the first, the first thing that seems like a sensible thing to keep count of is the body count because everyone mm-hmm. loves a good body count except Tipper Gore who got really mad at uh, Ice Cube for having body count rapping <laughs> about killing police. Uh, Tipper That's Gore is... Yeah, she's not fun to have parties. Uh, she, uh, whatever. <laughs> Sorry about that, Tipper. So... Um, the body count per the IMDb for for Doctor No is sixteen. Sixteen mm. people died, and I think do we work? Is it four by James
1: Bond's hand or three? I can't recall exactly. It's three or four by Bond's hand. So he kills, he shoots Professor Dent in cold blood. He stabs, um, he stabs the guard, the henchman in the in the pond when they're hiding with the bamboo shoots. He uh, he drowns Doctor No. Um, maybe maybe one or two more henchmen he uh he takes out on the way out of the exploding uh fortress yeah
0: i feel i feel i don't know if he kills anyone when he's escaping. I feel he's just super rude, like he just yeah. pushes people out of boats and stuff after they the courtesy of starting them.
1: Yeah, so he like, yeah, he he basically hijacks a boat, n- knocks out the two guys on board. One of the guys is unconscious, but he doesn't fall out of the boat. And as Bond drives off, he throws his body out of the boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's
0: a that's a bit of a gray area there. Um, and th- and this brings me to my point, which is the the body count of this movie is about sixteen per IMDb, where we're estimating like three, maybe that Bond killed on screen but honestly based on the number of people running around in the complex before bond escapes and goes away on his boat with honey rider and then the whole thing just blows up i'm pretty sure the body count is extensively higher this is like a death star kind of like a, I guess you know hypothesizing how many people were actually still there when it blew up we'll never yeah. know um <laughs> but you know so so be it we we can't we can't fix it that's just the 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 dangers of working for uh, an insane madman with, with plans for world domination. So uh, the next the next number we were running is... Yeah, late the, on us. Yeah, the next number is the age difference between James Bond and the Bond girl. Because I feel cool. this is a number that's going to go in interesting directions later on in the franchise. <laughs> Here, it's actually not that bad. Uh, it's only six years or thereabouts. Uh, Connery was about 32. Andrus was about 26. So yeah. that's actually that's actually within the realms of social norms. So yeah. well, d- well done guys. Uh, that's going to change when we get to like a view to a kill. <laughs> that's
1: going <laughs> to oh, change. And I think, again, uh, yeah, I think for your eyes only might have the biggest discrepancy, but, uh, we'll, we'll find out
0: that 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 is entirely possible. And this, and this again, brings me back to Cary Grant was the first choice. He would have 58, uh, to Er Andres is 26. Like he literally would be double her age. Um, <laughs> So I'm glad I'm glad they, they reined that one back in. And finally as something that I think is definitely worth keeping count of within this film, uh James Bond sleeps with three women in this movie. Mm-hmm. um he speaks with of course sylvia trench and then miss taro who he uh, that's a weird one honestly that's consent laws are just very the the, the rules of consent they're very <laughs> muddled and um, because i think both of them he was like i'm gonna kill this person but they still ended up having sex with each other and then finally we have as you mentioned earlier felix comes to pick up the the boat that they're in with a, a boat that is mysteriously packed full of of soldiers it's like something out of dunkirk like, he brought the entire British Navy of Jamaica on a tiny little tugboat. There's like 50 guys on that boat for no reason. Uh, and they and they throw James Bond a rope. And he lets them tow him for a while. And then he decides he's going to... Things are getting a little steamy with him and, and uh, honey. So he, he just lets go of the rope and lets it lets it go so he can drift in the ocean. Which Yeah, is that's pretty- always
1: yeah always my concern when i'm watching this is that how far do the cia get before they realize they're not towing bond that's anymore? a
0: great question i really don't like it seems it seems like his expense report is going to be like the second rescue mission we had to launch to pick you back up again because you just let yourself drift further um i don't know these, these are the things i guess james bond can just do whatever he wants um So I I guess that does that does that wrap that up? Are there any other uh, incredible
1: things you we haven't
0: touched on or that you'd like to
1: bring up at this point? Uh, Oh, yeah. One thing that we skipped was um, Dr. No somehow invented a shower that cures any source of radiation, which is (laughs) kind of kind of amazing. that's pretty handy. That's pretty
0: helpful because, honestly, since the fact that that Honey Rider and James Bond are basically just basking in radiation for the whole time. um, You know, we we never really talked about the encounter with the dragon, which is Quarrel escapes the radiation because he just gets shot by the dragon's flamethrower. It's a car with a flamethrower, and he just stands there, which, again, doesn't really do so well for Quarrel, the poor guy. I feel he deserved maybe a slightly more heroic death than hid behind a bush when someone had a flamethrower, which is not that good
1: yeah so coral is actually one of the other um sort of unsung bond tropes is he's the he's the male bond ally who is not felix Leiter. so bond will usually have a contact in the field that knows the area really well and he'll uh join bond for about half the mission but his purpose is generally just to die so that bond r- understands the gravity of the situation he's in and it's uh, true yeah to be fair, coral does do it magnificently
0: he does it's pretty cool they they set fire to some stuff there which is always always a plus uh, yeah he oh, may yeah. as well, he's like the Star Trek like red shirt guy pretty much he's he's the first one he may even be wearing a red shirt actually now that I think about it in the movie uh, <laughs> so there you go shirt, yeah. yeah so so there you go uh, another thing actually that i I didn't think to mention earlier is um james Bond's signature signature martini is in this movie but um for the first time it's introduced it's actually mentioned as being mixed not stirred. Mm. Which is a little interesting, and it was only later in the movie they mentioned it again. They mentioned that it's shaken, not stirred, so they 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 tack it down pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And I assume that James Bond drinks those things because they're absolutely disgusting. Which means that if someone poisons it, that it will probably just kill the poison in them. Um, you know, I, I don't know if vodka martini like he could just drink an old fashioned or something, something really tasty. But no, he's he's all about the dash, which ugh, rough stuff. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I just never had one that was made well. Um, you know, they're always stirred
1: for you. You got to get a shaken one.
0: That's it. Maybe the shaking somehow makes the the whole thing work out well. I don't. Yeah, it's just like mostly straight vodka, which is. Ugh. But anyhow, yeah. um, so so I think I think we've pretty much covered everything in Doctor No. Yeah. This, is, this is our first. Uh,
1: our yeah, first that's Doctor No, ladies and gentlemen.
0: That's it. So uh, I really, we really hope you enjoyed this. Um, If you have any suggestions, if you have any questions, if you have any uh, comments you want to lay in here, uh, feel free to reach out to Optimism Vaccine or to either of us. So, Jake, where where can you be contacted at?
1: Yeah, you can find me uh, mainly on Twitter. I'm at uh, Jake Tropila. That's J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A. All
0: right, and yeah. you can reach me. Yes, I'm. I'm on Twitter as well. More than I should be, honestly. It's a depressing, barren landscape. But anyhow, it's not barren enough to be honest. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at Real Jack Eason. That's R E A L J A C K E A S O N. That's um, right. So you can find me there. And then, do you know the Oxford Vaccine email address, per chance?
1: I do, yeah. It's very simple. So we're on Twitter at Optimism Vaccine, and uh, you can email us at optimismvaccine at gmail.com.
0: All right, so so that that works really well. So if you if you can think of the earliest incident of uh, a hero escaping via air duct, please. Please reach yeah. out to us. Let us know uh, if there's anything. If there's anything else you want us to keep account of within the, the James Bond series, reach yeah. out. Let us know. Um, yeah. So, I, I guess Jake, have you have you got any last words before we sign off here?
1: Um, well, I uh, I hope you all enjoyed uh, this first episode of our podcast. Uh, we'll have one uh, coming out once a month. So uh, fear not for your ears only. We'll return with From Russia with Love in October. And until then I'm Jake Tropila. I'm Jack Eason. Have a good night everyone.